Welcome to Access Utah. This is Sherry Quinn. Today on the program... Zachariah Gombert. I'm an assistant professor at Utah State University, Department of Biology. Joins us to talk about what is called parallel evolution. He and colleagues use a short and stout plant-eating insect to study evolution and ask if it is predictable and repeatable. First, we go back to his beginning. And could you talk a little bit about your background and why you chose biology? Yeah, um, so I guess um, I've been interested in biology for, for quite some time. I, I Particularly, I mean, ever since I started my undergrad, at least, I was, I was thinking a lot about biology. I was initially most interested in, in sort of more molecular genetics and genomics, which was just coming of age kind of as, as I was starting my undergraduate. But then during my undergraduate, I, I started getting involved in, in field work more and uh, evolutionary biology and ecology and that sort of broadened my interest in, in biology uh, more generally and sort of got me starting to think about uh, plant-insect interactions, which is kind of a, a focus of a lot of the things I, I do now. So uh, during both my, my master's degree, which I did down in, in Texas, and my PhD, which I did in Wyoming, I worked in generally in sort of evolutionary biology, evolutionary genetics and genomics. Um, pretty much that whole time working on, on insects and plants. Um, most of it actually working more on butterflies, which is which I still work on, but then I, I got into the stick insect work that the um, more recently in the last, I guess, three or so years now, um, but, but asking sort of similar questions to the things I, I had thought about in, um, before that, and really becoming more and more involved in uh, sort of genomic analyses in, in natural populations. So we've really just in the last, uh, I don't know, four or five years now, um, had the ability to bring genomics to bear on, on big questions, sort of in ecology and evolutionary biology, in, in a variety of organisms. Whereas before, you know, we, we basically only had the resources to think about genomics in, in maybe humans and some bacteria and, and maybe Drosophila or something like that. But now you really um, things have really opened up with changes in technology and, and increases in computational power where we're really now able to sort of ask cool questions with all kinds of things. And, and that's sort of what I've been doing for the last few years, at least, I guess. Yeah. And, and so what are some of those questions that, that you can, these cool questions? So uh, a, a lot of questions thinking about, uh, I mean, so one, I, um, which is part of what, what uh, this most recent paper is on, is thinking about um, predictability and repeatability and evolution at, at the molecular level. So as we, as we basically begin to, to decode, in essence, more and more of the genome and, and, and figure out how much variation there is in populations and how that might be related to different traits, we can start thinking about how well we can we can actually make predictions about, about ecological or evolutionary processes from looking at, at uh, genome-level variation. Beyond that, I mean, uh, in a, there's... We basically, for, for a long time, biologists have wanted to sort of understand what drives evolutionary change and what drives ecological interactions from a, from a molecular or genetic sort of level. And we've basically been uh, in this land of, of not having enough data, right, where, um, you're, where, we, where we basically might have the ability to look at a few genes, if, if we're lucky, and not really get a, a good picture of of what's going on across the genome and be able to tie that then to to process or or, or trait variation. Whereas now we can, 
at least start to anyway, with, with the ability to sequence partial and whole genomes from many individuals, we can finally say, okay, what are the, the loci responsible for this cool trait or that cool trait or this important trait, and, and how important is, is natural selection and driving variation at those, those loci, and are the same loci being used again and again in different populations, or are different loci being used in different populations when you get to the same phenotype, and how do all those genes interact to give you the, the, the cool trait that you're interested in? What is really fascinating in your recent paper, the question of, is evolution predictable and repeatable? Yeah. Can you talk about that study and what you found? Absolutely, absolutely. So, as I said, I mean, it's sort of one of the maybe longest standing questions in, in biology and evolutionary biology predictable in particular is, is sort of concerns how predictable and repeatable evolutionary change is. Um, the question was sort of really popularized by um, Stephen Jay Gould, who is a, a rather sort of well-known popularizer of evolutionary biology. He, he talked about uh, sort of this metaphor of, of what would happen if you could rewind the tape of life and sort of, you know, go basically rewind life and and maybe tape of life doesn't work as a metaphor very well these days, but something something equivalent to that. Um, rewind the tape of life and, and play it forward again. Would you would you get the same things out the other end, or do stochasticity, do randomness, historical contingency play such a major role in, in patterns of, of diversification evolution that if you if you rewound the tape of life and replayed it, um, you would get very different things? And it's sort of been a, a, a a sort of point of argument for a long time. It's, it sort of touches on fundamental things about the role of sort of stochasticity versus determinism in, in driving patterns of, of evolution. And for things to be sort of repeatable and deterministic, you would need first uh, natural selection to be the primary driver of evolutionary change, and, and second for it to be acting in a consistent way on the, on the same parts of, of the genome um, over and over again. In other words, there needs to be very, fairly few sort of routes to get to to a given endpoint. Um, if selection, if even if selection is is sort of uh, driving the same changes at the trait level, you're not going to have repeatable evolution. If there are many different ways you can get those same changes, whereas if there are only a few loci that that are uh, that can possibly give rise to that change, you're going to have more of this this repeatability. And people have, have thought about this, this idea of how repeatable and predictable is evolution for, for a while, but the focus has mainly been on individual traits or, or individual genes. So you can ask questions like, you know, if, if you have a, a species that's repeatably exposed perhaps to two different environments, um, do you see the same phenotypes evolving in those different environments? Or do you see some specific gene responding in, in a specific way in those different environments? What we did, which was quite different, is, is asked, well, what about if you look across the entire genome? Instead of sort of thinking of it as a, as a yes-no question, say, okay, how much of the genome shows repeatable, predictable patterns of evolutionary change versus how much of the genome shows more idiosyncratic or, or um, sort of uh, random-looking uh, change? And yeah, go ahead. I, I was just wondering if you could describe the... The plant-eating stick insect. So the, the, the focal organism for the study are these uh, stick insects. The species is Tamima cristini. They're uh, endemic to a, the Santa Ynez Mountain, which is a small mountain range in, in sort of southern California um, uh, along the coast, not too far from San Diego. And they're, uh, these, uh, they're, they're little sort of green uh, stick insects. They're, I don't know, maybe about 
six inches long. Um, they spend basically their whole life on, on a, a plant where they're going to, where they're feeding. And here in, in these, this mountain range where these stick insects are, they basically feed on one of two uh, plants, adenostoma uh, or ceanothus. And these plants have different sort of structures to the leaves, different shades to the leaves. So one of them has, they differ in the sort of shade of the green of the leaves and in whether you get more broad leaves or, or whether you get more um, sort of uh, almost needle-like uh, leaves. What kind of plant is it? Adenostoma is one of them. They're both sort of, uh, they're both kind of bushy. They're kind of shrub-type plants. Um, Adenostoma is, it's, it's, it's in the rose family. It's sort of a, a chaparral, sort of Mediterranean uh, fauna-looking plant, or sorry, flora. And it has, said again, sort of more, almost almost pine-like leaves. It's not a pine, but it has very sort of uh, narrow, sort of uh, needly leaves. Whereas Ceanothus is also sort of a, a Mediterranean-type shrub, or chaparral-type uh, shrub. Um, it's a... Uh, it has more more broad leaves, though. I guess so. Common names I don't know if, of of adenostoma, chemise, and red shank. And what's the lifespan of the insect? So the, the insects they they basically have one generation a year, and they are active sort of as adults for a handful of months. They're actually basically they start popping out uh, around March, uh, and then are, are around from from then until until. Uh, sometime in, in summer as, as adults, and they then overwinter before emerging the, the next year. And they, they basically spend, they said, their whole life sort of uh, feeding on these, these plants. They're, they're quite cryptic on, on the plants. So they've, they, and in particular, so again, in this, in this area, they've, they've basically, you've had this repeated evolution of two different, what are often referred to as ecotypes, which really just means sort of populations that are adapted to different resources, different habitats, and in this case, different host plants. So you can, you can think of them as almost different host plant races, host plant associated races or ecotypes. And they've, they've uh, evolved these repeated differences in the coloration of the stick insects that match the, the structure and color of the plants. So the adenostoma feeding uh, stick insects have uh, a shade of green that matches the green of, of the Denistomos plant and perhaps more importantly have this white stripe down their back which does this cool thing of basically breaking the, the stick insects pattern up into two sort of needle-like things rather than one broader pattern. So, so it looks like it's, it's sort of two different leaves instead of a single leaf which the one on, on Cenothus which has the the broader leaves, uh, those bugs don't have the white stripe, and there's that difference in having versus not having that white stripe makes the bugs more cryptic on the on the plant they're on. So the adenostoma ones blend in more on the adenostoma host plant. The ceanothus feeding ones blend in more on the on the ceanothus host plant, and they're they're important differences in the sense that they they affect the the rates of uh, predation on the the different host plants by birds. So in in a uh, Avian predators are a major source of predation in, in these stick insects, and my colleagues and I have done experiments looking at this where you sort of transplant bugs to the stick insects to different host plants and either exclude or don't exclude uh, birds by putting sort of cages around the host plants, and the answer is that if you, know, if you don't have, if you, if you allow birds to come there, then 
the stick insects that are on the wrong host plant get eaten more. If you exclude birds, they don't, sort of nicely demonstrating that, that there is um, strong selection on this pattern for crypsis that's driven by these birds on the different host plants. And one of the other sort of pretty neat things about them is that they're flightless stick insects, and they essentially uh, have very, very limited dispersal because of that. So they, they more or less will stay on a, on, on a, a single bush or patch of bushes, bushes their whole life, which has been really um, nice for some of the experimental work we've done with these stick insects, where if you put them on a plant, they, they basically stay put. How long would, would, does one particular insect live? How, days or weeks or? A couple months. So yeah, I mean it depends a lot, but you're uh, as you're talking about a, a lifespan of several months, depending on on what happens to them, um, whether they get eaten or not, those kinds of things. But so that you basically get one generation a year; they're active for part of the year. Many of them are going to not make it past sort of juvenile stages, but um, those that do well will live for a couple months. What is the benefit of looking like a stick? <laughs> It's, it's perhaps a bit of a, of a misnomer in this case. They don't necessarily look like sticks so much as leaves. Right? So there, there are stick insects that look like sticks. These ones are, are, are much more leaf-like, and, and the benefit is that you are um, not easily seen by predators, right? So they, they, vary, they, they are camouflaged or blend in well with the, host, with the plants they're feeding on, um, and that reduces the, the extent to which they're being eaten by, by birds. And again, they're, they're sort of... Not only do they blend in in general, sort of on, on these plants, but the two different ecotypes each blend in better on the plant that they're that they're feeding on, on the species of plant that they're feeding on, because of those differences in the in the patterning that that presence or absence of that white stripe. In your paper, in the press release, you say you asked yourselves, uh, if you reround life as it was a videotape and played it back, would you get the same results? Yeah. And what did you find? So what we basically found is that that there are at least in this case of the, of the stick insects, that there is this core set part of the genome, it actually it turns out to be about 17% uh, of, the, of the genome, that, that shows these, these repeatable patterns of divergence between different populations feeding on the same host plant. So there's this, this core part of the genome that seems to be diverging in a repeatable and predictable manner, whereas there's this other basically 83% of the genome that, that looks much more idiosyncratic. Now that core 17% seems to be enriched for key functional things and seems to be really important for um, adaptation to these different host plants. So I think what, it, what it, that all suggests is that evolution is at least in part predictable or has a, a strong predictable component or repeatable component, that there seems to be this, this core sort of part of the genome that's doing predictable, repeatable things, and, and that's perhaps the most important part of the genome for adaptation, at least in this case. But despite that sort of core part that's predictable, there are going to be many other parts of the genome doing more idiosyncratic things. So the answer is that, that evolution is both predictable and not, that some aspects, some components of evolution are, 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 are predictable, but, but that's going to be sort of a, among this background stochasticity unpredictability of other parts of the genome. And you, you used um, 160 stick insects, is that correct, for this study? Yeah, so the, the core study, so there were two parts to the study. One was looking at, at uh, natural populations of stick insects, and one involved uh, experiments with some stick insects. The natural populations, we looked at 160 stick insects uh, from eight different populations, and they were basically four pairs of populations on the different host plants. So you had four 
ceanothus feeding populations. For adenostoma feeding populations, roughly 20 stick insects from each. And there we, uh, we sequenced whole genomes from each of those 160 stick insects, which is pretty impressive. Um, there has not been that level of, of whole genome sequencing in very many things yet, and those things that have been sequenced to that extent are um, very much model systems, uh, humans and then a few other things, maybe Drosophila, but um, this is this definitely the most sequencing that's ever been at least published so far um, on a, a non-model uh, system. But in addition to that, we, we conducted a series of experiments where we transplanted stick insects to, to follow up on our work on the natural populations where we were basically asking whether those same, that same core part of the genome that, that shows consistent divergence between the natural populations, whether the same starts of the genome respond to host plant-specific selection over a short-term single-generation experiment. And that involved roughly a, another um, 2,000 stick insects that we transplanted to different bushes and uh, basically put the, transplanted the 2,000 stick insects in sets of 200 to 10 plants, uh, five adenostoma plants, five ceanothus plants, left them there for a whole generation, came back and collected the, the descendants the next year and sequenced both the founders and the descendants so we could look at how much the populations evolved over that year. And, and we're able to show that you, you see, um, again, not perfect, but a, a definite correspondence between those things that repeatedly diverged between the natural populations and those things that showed divergence between the experimental populations. What new studies will this, uh, will these findings lead to? So I think uh, there's, there's a couple different things there. So one, I think there's much more we want to do thinking about how much genetic variation there is in these populations for adapting to these different host plants, whether it's the same genetic variants being used repeatedly in an adaptation to these different host plants, both in, in this system and in some other systems. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, there, I also work uh, on, on butterflies, and I'm, I'm thinking about similar things in, in the butterflies I work on where there's been a recent host plant switch from a couple different native legumes onto alfalfa, which is a, a, a cultivated um, crop plant. Be, beyond sort of thinking about those things, I think what this, what this really does is it starts to set us up for saying, okay, if, if there is some degree of repeatability to evolution, and thus that we can we could perhaps do things like look at short-term experiments to make predictions about uh, longer-term patterns of evolution, then, then this suggests that we might have some ability to look at variation in populations now and assay how that variation affects survival under, under different conditions now and use that information to make predictions about whether and how populations might respond to future changes, um, whether those be natural changes to their environments or human-induced uh, changes, things like climate change or, or changes to the landscape because of development, those kinds of things. So I think this starts to put us in this framework for thinking about making predictions about how populations will respond to changes in the future because, at least based on our study here, we see a, some correspondence between what you see in the short-term evolution in experiments and longer-term sort of patterns of variation on the landscape. Well, it's really great to, to think about how a little, little tiny insect can answer really such big questions in, in evolution and 
climate change and yeah, all, yeah. all of those. Yeah, yeah. And I think, I mean, that's been, that's been the, insects have been one of our greatest sort of tools for studying um, evolution, ecology, many, many things in biology. You know, everyone sort of loves big things like bears and elephants and such, but they're, they're not very good for experiments and they're, they're not very good for, for asking questions really because they're just not, they're not tractable, they're not manipulable. Whereas insects, um, there, there are a bunch of them, there are all kinds of different ones, they, they're most of the diversity of things, uh, at least multicellular life on Earth, and you can do all kinds of great experiments with them, you can, you can do a lot more science with them than you're going to be able to do with, with giant sort of charismatic creatures. Okay, I did want to ask you one other question about the uh, enrichment in binding metal ions. So that was one of the, the neat things that came out of this is that, um, so like, like I said uh, earlier, you know, there's this, there's this core part of the genome that seems to be important and that's, that shows this repeated divergence between natural populations and divergence between experimental populations over a short time scale. That part of the genome stands out from the rest, kind of, in addition to being showing these parallel changes in two important respects. One is that it tends to be it contain more genes than, than those things that don't show repeatable patterns of divergence. So it's sort of a gene-rich chunk of the genome. Second, those genes tend to have a specific function way more often than you'd expect by chance. And about half of them that we're able to um, assign functions, specific functions too, seem to be involved uh, in metal ion binding. And that, that, that's that sort of a whopping enrichment, uh, you, like you said, much more so than you'd expect. And, and there are reasons to think that that might be specifically important for thinking about um, how these, these stick insects adapt to the different host plants. So it, it's the case that the plants can sequester various metals in, in, their, in their tissues, and that some plants use these sequestered metals as, as toxins, basically, that, that uh, help reduce herbivory. And these different plants are, are likely sequestering in different sort of amounts of different metals so that their sort of metal profiles, in essence, would, would be different. We, we don't know that yet. That's something we want to look into, but it's, it's quite likely. If that's the case, then it could be that depending on, on what plant you're on, you might need to have different sort of uh, alleles or different uh, variants of genes for binding those metals and getting rid of them because you, you're encountering different metal profiles. It's also possible that, that the stick insects aren't so much just trying to get rid of metals, there's probably some of that, but they could be trying to hold on to some specific metals because there's some metals they might need for building their exoskeletons, for example, and if those metals are, are less common in one host plant than the other, then they might need to do a better job of holding on to those. So it's not yet clear whether they're trying to get rid of or hold on to metals, but it, but it's certainly the case that um, the metal profiles of the plants likely diff differ, so adapting to those different metal profiles could be a, a key aspect of adapting to those different host plants. Will you continue using this insect for your studies? Yeah, 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 yeah. so we have, we have um, more experiments and studies planned, more sequencing going on, and we are, we're particularly starting to look into some of those things like the role of the metals, uh, the direct role of metals, um, as well as looking at more into how uh, differences in mate preference evolve between these stick insects that are using the different host plants and the roles of sort of uh, chemical pheromones in driving those things. So there's, there's a lot going on still with the stick insects. Well, thank you so much for your time and congratulations on, on what a really great and neat study and, um, and, and it's published in Science, correct? Yes, that's right. That's right. We actually got the cover even. There's a nice picture of the stick insects on the cover. Wonderful. Well, thanks, thanks so much. And uh, that, that's, that's really great to hear. And um, hopefully be back in touch when you have more exciting research out there. That sounds great. 
Thank you. That was USU biologist Zachariah Gompert. Thanks for listening. Sherry Quinn, Access Utah. There's a destination a little up the road from the habitations of the towns we know. A place we saw the lights turn low, the jigsaw jazz and the jet fresh flow. Pulling out jobs and jamboree handouts, two turntables and a microphone. Bottles and cans that just clap your hands or just clap your hands.